something huge. We are at a crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. A culture, a business, it isn't accidental. It's purposeful. And, and it often starts with understanding your own weaknesses and the weaknesses of the company. That's exactly where it started for Henry Ward, CEO at eShares. We talk with him today about management, about feedback, about how you actually structure and run a company, and so many other things, his prolific medium blogging. Lots of fun stuff on tap today. Let's dive into our conversation with Henry. I'm Kit Bodner, and this is The Growth Show. So, so Henry, you're, you're one of probably my most read medium authors because you have a ton of depth to your content on medium. Uh, so I figured we'd start with some, some of the stuff you've been writing about on medium, because there's a bunch of interesting things there. And I, and I thought we'd start off with a little bit with something I disagree with you about. Um, great. <laughs> and, and one of the things that, and which is great, cause I didn't leave a comment in this post, but now I just get to have like a real conversation with you about it, which is even a little bit nicer, which is, so you talk about, you are willing to basically hire somebody who may be great, but might also totally burn out and, and fail and, and, and not, yeah. not be a good fit versus miss out on, on the opportunity to maybe have a great person. And, I don't know. From my perspective, I always worry in that case that those people who are the burnout people are going to come in and cause a lot of cultural erosion. They're going to alienate people on the team. They're going to cause uh, folks to lose respect in the hiring manager because they're like, man, this person, this, this hiring manager thought this person was good. And like, man, do they even know what they're doing? That's, that's kind of what I worry about in that, in that situation. Like, how do you guys prevent that? Like, or do you just disagree with that? Um, I, I uh, totally agree. It's a real risk, uh, and I think it's really hard for a lot of p- companies and people uh, to do. I think one of the thing, one of the reasons, um, and I, I would say, you know, we're not immune to it. This could become a problem for us in the future. So so far, it has not uh, been, but but certainly we're, we're cognizant of it. And I think the reason it hasn't uh, been that way is for two reasons for us, or what we've done that to to prevent this having become a problem for us. Um, so one is we're very open about our, our mistakes and this doesn't just apply to people, you know, it, um, you know, it, we do a, a show and tell for the entire company and, you know, uh, people will, will show stuff that they're working on stuff that, that works, that didn't work. Um, I'll talk personally about mistakes that I made this week. Um, things also that I was successful, right? It's not necessarily a focus on mistakes, but I think we're just, have a, a culture of openness around um, it's not about the results, it's about the journey or the progress. Uh, and progress is inherently um, uh, mistake uh, prone. Uh, you know, not, not everybody that gets on the soccer field is gonna do everything perfect every time they get the ball. Um, and so I think when you go into hiring with that model that uh, it's a very imperfect science, that in fact it's very hard to predict whether people are going to be successful that, and that you expect people to not be successful when when it happens it's not um it's not as surprising it's it's not one of these you know what's wrong with my manager that they made this mistake it's 
you know, hey, we, we make mistakes. Uh, this happens or part of the process. And I think part of our progress. I, I think the second thing, too, is that we um, believe very strongly that it is it is very hard to predict if someone's going to be good at eShares and um, that we are at best slightly better than average of most companies in predicting it. That we, we actually don't think that the, the core competency or the competitive advantage that we have in, in the talent battle is, is picking. We're not necessarily like stock picking or people picking. We're not great at that. What we are great at is taking people, pulling people into eShares uh, and allowing them to be the best uh, person they can be at, the, at, at our company. Uh, so to us, we really focus less on the picking part and really focus on when we do pick somebody, how do we ensure their success and make them super successful? And so if you look at the statistics of our, our um, recidivism rate and you know, how many people we have to let go after hiring them, it's, it's, it's quite low um, by most standards. And I, I think it's, it's not because we're actually great pickers, but I think it's because we're really good at helping people become successful here quickly. So how do you do that? You know, I think everybody listening is like, well, that sounds great. I'd love to do that. Like, so what, what do you put in place to actually make that happen? Um, and I, I do this in my class. So I, I do a class for all new, new uh, employees. Um, it's a one-day class. It's called East Year's 101. And I, I cover a lot of stuff. So we actually open the, the meeting with me doing uh, my Series B pitch. So, so mm-hmm. everyone, every employee can hear, can see me, how I present the company to investors, as an example. Uh, and we go through a lot of things. And one of the things that we talk about is being helpful and I tell all the employees this, I, I say, um, there's very little, I think each is a very open culture. You know, we, we, we do a lot of different things. Um, we are fine with mistakes. We encourage employees to try new things, all of those things. There's very little that you can do and get fired for at eShares, you know, outside of misconduct. But sure. there's very little at eShares that, that would get you fired, except for one thing, uh, and that's not being helpful. Um, we are a helpful com- company. Um, uh, <coughs> uh, it is our core fundamental principle. And so if anybody asks you for help, be helpful. And if you're not, uh, we'll let you go. And just that, that tenant creates this culture where when somebody comes in, um, everybody, you know, we encourage them to ask for help. And they're, they're rewarded for it because everybody is super helpful in helping them. And the biggest risk that new employees have at any company is that they don't get enough help until they get to, to um, cruising speed and be successful. I mean, the, the most common time somebody gets fired in a, at a work uh, in, at a job is within the first six months. And so, um, the more you can do to rally around that person and help them be successful, your your retention rate goes up considerably through that. And so, I think we've just really adopted this, and it's very reinforcing. You know, so. Um, you know, the first employees before we got into this helpfulness thing, you know, were like, especially engineering, you know, just sure. give them the give them the code and they'll <laughs> sink or swim and they'll figure it out, you know. And and so we had to really focus hard on no, that's not how we operate here. This is not a see if they make the cut company. You know, we we can actually influence the success rate of people here. Where I think most companies they don't feel that way. It's it's sort of like if you pick the right person, they would be successful. We actually say we don't know if we picked the right person, but we can be we can make play a, a big role in making people here successful. And so um, so once you start that process, it becomes very reinforcing because the employees that were um, 
that are new that got a lot of help and really appreciated how people, you know, rallied around them to help them be successful. You know, when they're, uh, you know, now a tenured employee at eShares, having been here a year or more, and the new employees come in, they remember that and they do the same thing for the new employees, and it becomes a very um, uh, self-reinforcing model. Yeah. So. I want to I want to dive into that a little bit. I'm very fortunate that the the team the marketing team here at HubSpot that that I work with very helpful group of folks, inc- incredibly helpful, incredibly welcoming. One of the I think the risks we see associated with that is it makes focus a little harder because it's easy to get distracted, it's easy to get pulled away from this thing that is very important that you need to work on because you need to help somebody else. It's like how do you balance those things? Like that's that's something that keeps me up up here like how do you reconcile that one of the things that a lot of employees i, I do a one-on-one with every new employee that starts at each shares uh, after about 30 days or so 30 to 45 days um and i basically ask them like how's it going uh, you know are you getting the help you need all of those things but one of the questions i always ask them is what surprised you about eShares? What what did you learn about being here mm-hmm. that you didn't expect? I do the same thing. And one of the common, yeah, it's a great. I learned so much from it. It's such a it's such a wonderful question. And one of the common um, questions or observations that I, I get or answers is, um, we I thought you were a very execution focused company, but boy, you you guys have a lot of meetings. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we do like it's, they're yeah. not wrong. Uh, we have a lot of meetings, and um, and I I I thought about that after I started hearing it, and I, I said that's true. I wonder why that is, and I very quickly know why that is. And I, I came back and I talked about this to the employee, you know, employees, and I said it's actually by design. And the reason is that the biggest risk most most companies think about sort of efficiency and like making sure employee gets you know work their full eight hours and and get stuff done on time and all of those things and to us the biggest risk is not that our employees don't do their work the biggest risk for us is that employees do the wrong work exactly and i was i was about to i was about to I, jump in there because it's like all of this comes down to prioritization and what people are working on for sure and um the I would much rather spend, I'm being somewhat hyperbolic, but, but to illustrate the point, right? I would I'd rather spend six hours in meetings making sure as a company we're, we're doing the right thing and then actually execute for the remaining two hours of the day than spend, you know, seven hours of productive, quote, execution, but they're all doing the wrong stuff. And, um, uh, and so when I look at this sort of question about, like, helpfulness versus I got stuff to do, it's a really easy one for me. Um, help people. Like I am happily will will trade that off. Um, be helpful to people. The long term success of our organization is based on uh, individuals being successful, not the sh- sort of short term like let's accomplish this task. The biggest problem for employees is they're like, well, you say that, Henry, but then when I don't get it done by Friday, you're going to come yell at me. Um, mm-hmm. And and the the way that I'm able to um, to say that and 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 not be uh, hypocritical is. We're an unusual company. We we never have due dates. Um, it's sort of it's actually outlawed. We we don't have this idea of like you have to get this done by Friday. Um, we are a time time boxing company. So we say um, we're going to work on this for a week, and it is what it is. And if it's not good enough at the end of the week, that's okay. We'll just say we're going to spend two more days on it. Uh, and as long as I am true to that course, people feel very um, empowered to say, look. You know, I was time boxing a week on this, but you know, this this new time boxing problem of helping has has come up, and I'm gonna I'm gonna change my time boxing uh, priorities. 
so time boxing is a very kind of, I think, started in, in the engineering side of the world, I think, is where kind of I've become familiar with it. And what's interesting is, like, you make a very interesting point in that what teams and organization needs is some type of forcing function around work, and, not, and deadline isn't the only forcing function. You know, I think there are people out there being like, man, a time box? Like, how do I know how to even estimate what I should spend on this time? Like, what's what's the right way to even just figure out what that should be? Like, do you just get better at it over time? Or how, how does it actually work in practice? Uh, what I tell all the employees here is uh, don't confuse time boxing with, with estimating. Uh, so <laughs> when you say, line. I'm going to work, yeah, when I'm going to work on this for two hours, it's not that you think it's going to take two hours to finish. It's like... Out of my eight-hour day, I have six, you know, things to do, and this one scores a two hours of my time to work on at priority. Uh, and so, time boxing is not an estimate; it's a priority uh, mechanism. And I, I use me myself as an example, right? There's, I'm never sort of done with sales, right? I don't have like this task like make sales, um, <laughs> but I, I have in my calendar, you know, depending on where I think sales fits in the priority list of stuff that I need to do. I'll say, like, I am going to block off four hours a week to work on sales, whatever that means, right? Maybe it's working with the sales team. Maybe mm-hmm. it's, you know, calling customers and getting referrals. Like, what a, you know, tactical or strategic, but I spend four hours a week working on this. And then when I think sales needs more, I'll spend eight hours. And if I think, oh, you know, they, I need, you know, sales is now in the lower priority list, I'll move it down to two. Uh, and so, uh, so once you start thinking of it that way, um, it, it becomes much easier to just go, look, I, I just think this is a two-hour uh, priority. What's interesting about that is that you often don't connect deadlines and prioritization as tightly as you just explain, like, time boxing, time boxing and prioritizations, which um, is really cool. It's, really, it's very interesting. I don't think a lot of organizations think or operate that way. How do you... Do you then look at the different teams and kind of how they're spending time and make sure that that time is aligned with the priorities? Or how do you kind of check in on that stuff? Um, so, for example, in engineering, there's a, we have a one-week kind of sprint cycle. And basically the time boxing for – and our teams are very small, so we deliberately break up product teams into very small groups. And their time box is a week, and the question is um, how, much, how much can you get done in a week? And then that's what gets released. And you can learn a lot about what a team thinks is important um, uh, and how well they execute by seeing what they put into that one-week box and what comes out of it. So I do the inverse, right? So instead of saying, like, um, here, you know, show me the, the amount of time, you know, allocated to each of these priorities, I go, here's, here's one week, you know, what, what do you allocate into that one-week box? Uh, and then I start looking at what um, what they allocate and what they complete. And it, it is somewhat after action, right? So that's the trade-off as a manager. And why a lot of executives don't like this is I learn after the fact. I'm not going in ahead of time and going, here's your priorities, you know, go do this. I learn a month later, you know, or a week later, two weeks later, three weeks later, like this is the trend of what they're what they think is important because this is what they're doing within their their only they only have one week to do it. Um, and so, so if I want to make changes, I have to, I have to be on top of it and make, make them very quickly. Yeah. So it's, it seems like really if you're, if you're out there and we, we have a lot of startups and entrepreneurs out there, if you're listening and you're thinking about doing time boxing, you really have to have a good kind of operating model for prioritization and the focus of the company so that you're okay with getting that information on kind of a lag, more lagging basis than you are now. 
Is that, is that kind of how totally. you would think about it? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, a lot of people think that executives are sort of the tip of the spear of the organization. And, and for us, it's actually the inverse. It's, the, it's the, the employees, you know, on the front lines of building stuff, working with customers, selling to customers uh, that are the efficient frontier of the company. And I'm like in the back uh, trying to digest all the signals they're sending. Totally. We, we, we often say here, it's like, man, if, if the success of this business was dedicated to the ideas of this like handful of us on the management team, we'd be in real, real big trouble because we sure don't have all totally. the answers, right? And it's like you have to, have to depend on the people who have all the data points and the experience and the inputs to actually figure that out. So one thing we've talked about here on this show a lot is the idea of feedback and feedback to employees and feedback to teams. And I think we're unfortunately have to keep talking about it because so many people are bad at it. And you've, you've got a medium post called a manager's FAQ. And like one of the things you dive into that is feedback. And I think you have a kind of very specific point of view. So I'd like you to share that with everybody listening. And then uh, we'll talk a little bit about it from there. Sure. I, um, so in the, in the manager's FAQ, I talk about two things. So one is um, I, I'm not a huge fan. I'm not a fan of uh, sort of employee ranking or grading systems. Like I, I think it's a vestige of, of school and, you know, it was an easy yeah. way for teachers to, to group students and you know, decide who goes to college, all that kind of stuff. So it's great for the institution. Like, it's great for uh, ranking teachers, well. right? <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. It's, it's, yeah, it's a very institutional construct, and they've, you know, the world has convinced people that they should want that. Um, but I, I actually don't think it's good for the individual. Um, so, so that's sort of point one. And then point two is I think um, there, there is this view that feedback is designed – or the good feedback corrects behavior. Uh, as opposed to reinforces behavior. It's just such a weird thing about, you know, like, you know, nobody ever, when I was in school, like nobody, no teacher ever came to me and was like, you know, hey man, you know, great, you know, if I got a B on the class, you know, C or B or C, nobody was like, hey, you, you nailed 80% of those questions, you know, high five, right? They're like, hey, you got 20% wrong. And, um, and there's just very much this feedback, it's synonymous with correcting behavior. And I, I think the ROI on correcting behavior is much lower than people think it is. And I think the ROI on reinforcing positive behavior is quite high. Uh, and I, I think most people don't realize that. So then how do you actually reinforce positive behavior better? You know, if you've got most managers out there focusing on the negative, I'm with you. It's, uh, I, I don't care if you're bad at this thing, if this thing isn't that important or isn't material or you're really good at this other thing that can make a big, big impact. But how do you actually do it? You know, I'll just give you a really simple example. We did a, a company offsite um, uh, over the weekend, and we have an office manager, and she's fantastic, and, you know, she, she ran the whole thing. And there were – it was almost perfectly executed. You know, I said to her after the, the offsite, I said, um, first of all, thank you for organizing it, but two – you know, the, the precision and execution that you had in organizing everything from Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that everybody knew exactly what to do and when to do it was exceptional. Like you, you clearly put a tremendous amount of effort in thinking about how to organize this and communicate uh, the agenda to everybody. Um, it was awesome. Thanks for doing that. And I'm quite confident every offsite she ever plans for the rest of her career, she will, she will plan out every piece of the agenda and schedule uh, in detail beforehand. Yeah, like because, I've locked that behavior in. 
Yeah, and because you were very specific in that feedback, right? And I think when we talk about feedback on this this show, it's specificity, both negative and positive, is critical. And like that soundbite you shared, I think for everybody listening, is a really important one. You gave very specific, like what you liked about it and what she did exceptionally well. And it wasn't just like, oh, the event went great, or thank you for everything. Uh, it was very, very totally. specific. Uh, reinforcing totally. and, those things. And you know, the part that isn't said um, is. You know, there were a couple of organizational things that, that um, were, were still, like, totally minor, right? Um, uh, but, you know, minor mistake kind of thing. And then um, if I focused on those mistakes, right, first of all, she feels bad because 99% of what she did was awesome. <laughs> right. Um, so you, right, you focus on the 1%. And the thing is, is it is very likely that she will make that mistake again. Like, I, I know a lot of listeners may go, no, no, because you told her not to. But, but the, the reality of human nature is very likely she will make that mistake again. Um, but if you tell her how great it was that she did these things, if she does those again more consciously, I am quite confident that that 1% will go to zero. Yeah, because she feels because more confident in those things. You're, totally. You've given her the instruction book on how to get 99% to 100%. You know, I think about it a lot of the things that any human are really great at, the thing that they can kind of apply to muscle memory. And once you've kind of applied something to muscle memory, then you can kind of don't have to focus on it as much. You can go do something new and, and, and work on something new. And I think that's what you're giving her in this kind of example. It's like, oh, you nailed this. And she'll feel confidence to kind of go and expand it the next time she does something and, and kind of address some of the stuff maybe she personally wasn't happy with. Uh, as, as the you said it better than I did. That's ex- I did. It's exactly right. Okay. So that's, that's a little bit about feedback. You also talk about delegation in that same post, which I thought was interesting. Uh, one part of management that actually doesn't get talked about that much anymore, I think used to get talked about a lot, but now it kind of gets ignored. You and I have the same kind, similar kind of viewpoint, so I don't know that we're going to argue too much here, but it's like, basically I think we agree that if you're a leader, you should, you should keep all the bad and shitty work for yourself and try to delegate as much good work as possible. And I think this is especially true, like development team, good engineers and tech leads and, and so forth do, do this kind of stuff. But in practice, it's actually kind of hard. Do you, how do you keep your, yourself in check for making sure that you're delegating the good work out to folks? It's, it's really hard. Um, uh, I often will ask, you know, in management teams when we're like got a bunch of stuff uh, of uh, things to do, um, so we're like, you know, we're just triaging uh, a bunch of things that we need to get done. Um, I will almost always ask, uh, okay, you know, starting here, here's task one. Who wants to do this one? Right. Who wants to do that one? Who wants to do the third one? Uh, and we'll just go through it that way. And mm-hmm. then kind of what's left is I'll take it. <laughs> That's good. So, so basically you're going to, you let them choose what the good stuff is instead of making that judgment yourself. As much as I can, you yeah, know, sometimes I, I would just say, yeah, like, like I need you to do this and, and I'll, I'll tell them, you know, I'll be up front, you know, uh, especially with our, our lawyer. There's a lot of, you know, uh, miserable work to do there. <laughs> oh, and I'll yeah. look, 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 I, 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 I don't want to do this. I know you don't want to do it. Uh, I'm going to play the CEO card. I, I need you to do this one, <laughs> you know, sorry. Um, uh, but I try to do that. I, at least when I do do it, I try to be as conscious about it as I can and, and up front. Well, and I also ima- I also imagine that a lot of the time, if not all the time, when you do that, you're doing that because you have some other piece of crap work 
that you, that you have to do that you're probably better suited to do than than the lawyer in this example, right? And sometimes it's you can provide that context too, and that's like, oh, all right, well, I don't feel bad doing this thing that I'm not psyched about doing because I know he's over there do, doing something very similar. Totally. And once you start establishing, you know, it's one of those things that if um, if you establish a, a reputation for being that kind of manager. Um, you know, you, I mean, there's a lot of crappy work, you know, a lot of shit work to do. <laughs> totally. um, uh, but, but if you establish, if they trust you, like, Hey, this is the manager that, that tries to, you know, not is, is that type of manager. Even when you do delegate the, the shitty work, just cause you have to, people give you credit, right? They, they assume yeah. that there's a reason for it. That's uh, yeah. I've, I have found that to be true as well. So I want to shift, shift gears a little bit and talk about company structure. So, You've got the company set up in what I think is a pretty interesting way. Could you kind of explain how the company is run, how it's how it's organized, and then I've got some things I want to talk about around there. Um, we we operate in these these, these partnerships of three, um, uh, and then each of the business unit trifectas roll into the executive trifecta, which is me, Josh, and the and the engineering head. Uh, and it's it's sort of modeled after Dave McClure's hacker hustler designer um, mm-hmm. kind of model, which is you you just really need three three people with three skill sets to start a company, the, the business person, the product person, the engineering person. We actually don't call it hacker hustler uh, designer. We call it um, the business lead, the, the business trifecta head, the product trifecta head, and the engineering trifecta head. So those, those three uh, individuals um, make up a trifecta, and they're jointly responsible um, for their business unit's P&L and the growth of their business unit. And then those three report into me as the business lead uh, Josh as the product lead for the whole company, uh, and then um, uh, we're currently looking for a, a head of engineering uh, at the executive level. So the three of us are a partnership at the top. There, there is no sort of one person at the top. What happens when, you know, because you don't have one core decision maker, what happens when those three people of one of those businesses like, disagree with each other? How does that get worked out? Yes, yeah, so if they disagree at the trifecta level, um, it can get escalated to us. So um, if there's a, a disagreement between me, Josh, and you know the head of engineering at the executive level, um, presumably we can take that to the board. It's never been an issue at that level for us. Uh, um, so far, at least, we've been able to, you know, we're, we're pretty well aligned. And when it, it's one of these forcing functions that, that when we, we aren't aligned and there is really a strong disagreement uh, amongst the three of us, that's usually a, a sign of something, something bad's happening. Like we really got to take a break or, you know, stop and, and look at what's going on that we, we strongly disagree about something. This is an interesting model. I guess one of the questions I have around any model you have you have things you give up, you know, because you're structured this way, there are some weaknesses to this organization structure. What do you think are kind of the weaknesses you guys are working against in being set up this way? What's hard about it? Yeah. So I think what hard, what's hard about it, that's a great way to phrase it. So I think what's hard and what we, we wrestle with on this is, um, uh, not so much the decision making, but the coordination between the business units. Mm-hmm. So, uh, mm-hmm. me and Josh, and at the executive trifecta level, we lose a lot of control, and, and it's by design. Like we mm-hmm. are, we are giving more autonomy to the business units, and so that makes it much harder um, for us to say, hey, you know, hey, we just want to go do X, 
and like just tell you know the VP of product, the VP of business sales, the VP of, you know of, of operations, like here, go do this. <laughs> um, we we have to sort of convince these trifecta leads like it's in their interest to do this. Um, uh, so that's part one, and then part two is the coordination between the teams. Um, uh, again, becomes much less sort of command and control and much more um, uh, bottoms up based. And so one of the things that we often wrestle with is, you know, one business unit wants, is going, you know, west, this other business unit is going east, and each of them are both acting rationally for their <laughs> business unit, but it actually doesn't work well across, you know, the whole organization. Yeah. And so bringing those guys together and trying to trying to get something to work, get them to work together in a way that we think is better for the whole, uh, that's been a challenge. You're essentially trying to run a perpetual startup, basically, in, in, in a lot of ways, which is awesome. Uh, yeah. Okay, so a, a couple of quick questions before we go. One is, to, to come up with those realizations, to come up with, this is how the company should be structured, because these are our shortcomings as leaders. Like, how'd you do that? Like, how'd you come to grips with those? How'd you become aware of those? doesn't seem like an easy thing to do. Um, I, I, um, it just sounds like a humble brag and I, I really don't mean it this way. <laughs> it's going to be great. I, I, I think I, w- I think I was just lucky because I was always very aware of my weaknesses. Like I, <laughs> I just, you know, it just sort of, it's just been something that I, I've always been aware of my entire life. I'm sure there's a psychological element to, you know, how I was raised or something, you know, maybe it has also to do with my aversion to correcting people, uh, you know, as a way to give them feedback, but I've always just been super cognizant of what I'm not good at. Um, and to me that the, my life's journey has been trying to figure out what I am good at. And I think, um, I think Josh and a lot of the leaders of the organization, um, are, are quite similar. They're very open about what they're good at, what they're not good at. They enjoy doing what they're good at, you know, all of those things. And I think it's just a culture that, that spread very early on. You know, we, we make a lot of jokes, uh, about stuff that we're, we're not good at. I, I can tell you like, <laughs> You know, one of the things that we're not good at right now is keeping our server, uh, our, our server performance. Like our, our 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 application is slower than it should be. Oh, that's always a tricky uh, one early we, on. Yeah, and we make a lot of jokes uh, about how bad we are at building, you know, fast websites. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and it, it's 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 funny, but it's also true, which is what yeah. makes it funny. Uh, and I think we're just really open about that. And and when you can talk about those things and sort of enjoy the weaknesses, but also enjoy that we get better at it because we're aware of the weaknesses. Um, I, I think it's a, a very um, self-perpetuating culture. Interesting. And and makes total sense. So two last questions here about writing. Like you're a CEO, you're running a 100-person company. You write a lot. And you, you, you publish a lot of what you're thinking about, what you're doing at the company. Some of that's obviously, you know, to help recruit and do some different things there to promote the company. But why do you do it? Why is writing about all this stuff valuable to you? It, it really started, um, uh, for me, uh, it was really about uh, writing for my employees. So a lot of the stuff that I write about was stuff that I, I talked to employees about, I shared with employees, I also shared with prospects that were thinking about becoming employees. Um, and what I realized, especially as we were growing so quickly, the biggest risk that we had was um, I would say something when we were 40 people uh, and everybody, you know, up to 40 was like, yeah, totally. I'm, I'm on board with that. But now we're 80 and I haven't said that to them. Mm. And um, the biggest risk that we had was that our, our culture and, the, and how we do things and why we do things that way um, would, would start to blur. And so the most important thing that I could do 
was to write those things down so that not only everybody at eShares would know what we do and why we do it, um, but also people that were coming into eShares would know what we do and why we do it. Uh, and also, in part, it would actually, it's partly in a, um, in a recruiting tool, but it's also sort of a, uh, those who wouldn't like working at a company like that don't even apply because they already know, yeah. like, hey, I'm not on board with this kind of stuff. And so, so it, it's, it's a very reinforcing um, function to, to preserve and to grow the culture where employees all read everything I write and go, okay, I, I understand now why he's doing it. But also we, we've saw, we allow people to self-select um, to come into the company that would also reinforce the stuff that we've written. And we, the only reason we, well, I mean, we publish it for candidates, but it also just seemed to be something that, I, you know, when I talk to CEOs at breakfast and things like that, um, you know, I'm not wrestling with anything new. Like this is stuff every <laughs> entrepreneur deals with. Uh, so we might as well put it out there and hopefully it helps others. Yeah, absolutely. And generate some good co- conversation for you on and offline, I imagine as well. But what's interesting to me about a lot that this, as to kind of close is that if you read anything you've written, it's very clear and strong point of views in what you're talking about, what you're presenting to your employees and to the rest of the world. You seem very, you seem very decisive. I don't, and I don't know if that's true or not, and that's who you are, but you, it seems like you're very decisive. Like, how did you get to being so decisive? Like, how do you think about making decisions and thinking through stuff like this? Um, yeah, it's... Uh... I think the big thing for me, and I, I, I hope and feel like we've adopted this as a culture, is that um, we feel very comfortable uh, as an organization and as, a, as people or as a person with, with who we are. Uh, and we're totally okay that a lot of people won't, won't like that or disagree with that. So uh, I give you this, the, sort of the, the class example. In my eShares 101, there was a lot of ideas in there. And the only thing that really generated any controversy was the 8.30 a.m. start time, because <laughs> you know, we, we require uh, employees to start at 8.30 uh, for their morning meetings. And, you know, I use this analogy with sports and, like, you know, the, the, you know, the in New England Patriots wouldn't tell everyone, show up for practice whenever you want. You know, they, <laughs> they show up and they practice together. And I got all this sort of um, negative uh, commentary about, um, you know, that rule and how we're missing out on the best talent because of that. And, and it's discriminatory towards towards people with families, which I always thought weird because, you know, like only in Silicon Valley could that be discriminatory. Like forget all the school <laughs> teachers and nurses and, you know, construction workers uh, that, that have to show up at work. Um, but, uh, you know, we were really okay with that. And we were also okay knowing that there are a lot of people that wouldn't come to eShares because of it. Yeah. And, what was really surprising for us was how many people did come because of it and, and actually like it. Like if you ask employees here, they don't go, oh, man, I love e-shares, but this 8.30 a.m. thing, you know, I just tolerate it. They're, they're actually the, the employees that come and stay here are like the 8.30 a.m. thing is one of the best things about working here. Um, and so, so we get very we, – we, we are comfortable with who we are, which allows us to just be who we are, and it attracts more people that like who we are, and then it also sort of repels the people that don't, which reinforces our comfort being, in our, being comfortable with who we are. In another good lesson in culture and defining who you are, and sometimes defining who you are is also excluding those folks who you're not. And uh, I love that you stuck to it and didn't, didn't succumb to any of that feedback. That's awesome. So – Henry, I really appreciate you taking time out of what I know is a crazy schedule as a CEO to come and chat all things entrepreneurship and building and business building with us today. So thanks. Uh, I'll let you get back to actually running a company, but it was awesome to talk with you today. 
I had a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Refer a friend to subscribe to this podcast, and you can be featured in an episode. If you refer five friends to subscribe to the show, you'll get a shout-out in our weekly email newsletter. Refer ten, I'll give you a shout-out on our next episode. Twenty, you get a featured segment on the next episode. And if you refer a hundred friends, you get the entire episode to yourself. That's right, a hundred referrals, and you become the guest. Tell them to subscribe to the show in their favorite podcast app, then head over to bit.ly slash TGS referral friend to give you credit for the referral.